Welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Kan, author of the number one best-selling book, Sensitivity is Your Superpower, How to Harness Your Gifts, Fulfill Your Purpose, and Create a Life of Joy. And if you are new here, I would love to gift you my Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide, The Three Ways of Navigating Your Way to More Peace, Positivity, and Personal Power. And you can get that at sensitivesoulguide.com and you'll be added to my mailing list. We have a lot of things that we love to share with people, including our monthly free mini healings. So to get wind of when those are and how to connect, just get the freebie at sensitivesoulguide.com and you'll be added to our list. Now today I have very special guest, Donald Lee, and we are going to be talking about his book that recently launched called What the Hell is Going On? The Web of Fraud That is Enslaving Everyone and How We Can Escape to Freedom. Now before y'all run away in case you're afraid of conspiracy theorists, I want to read you my quote and endorsement of this book. Here it is. My favorite line from this book is, in this spiritual war, our strategy is love, our tactic is forgiveness, our weapon is nonviolent, non-cooperation. And I couldn't agree more. Let me tell you more about what we're going to be talking about today. So, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened in our past history, not that far back, and uh, they seem to be, you know, accidental, like things seem to be like, over here, over there, kind of random, but I'm just wondering, like, is there a pattern to that? You know, maybe those that are called conspiracy theorists are really pattern recognition experts, right? (laughs) So uh, today, Donald pulls together evidence from dozens of disciplines to connect the dots on what he calls a web of fraud that has been happening that if you can step back and look at the big picture has been happening for quite some time and the path that at least on the on the outside that that humanity is on is probably not what we want to continue doing if we really want to manifest that that peace that joy that love prosperity and abundance for all because that is my mission is to help people get there and uh, so In the show today, we're going to talk about some of those things, uh, like climate change, like the pandemic, like what are those patterns that have been going on and where we've seen them before. Um, And then, you know, if we were like a, you know, kind of like a investigator, spiritual investigator, or even a spy, like how do you get to the bottom of what's really going on? And um, we're going to talk a little bit about mass formation, how that happens, and how people, even with real factual data can actually turn away from that and kind of go about their own business. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And most importantly, we're going to talk about what we as individuals can do to set human path to a better vibration, uh, both spiritually and practically. I think that's really important. And to learn more about Donald Lee, you can go to comminghomespirit.com. That's the website, comminghomespirit.com. And uh, we'll be talking about a couple places where you can actually get the book, What the Hell is Going On. It's a wonderful book. So let me tell you a little bit more about Donald. He's a spiritual author and speaker and so much more. His spiritual work aims to bring spirit into materiality, to help people be in the world but not of the world, to guide people along their individual spiritual journey back to God and in the process to live their physical 3D lives to the fullest. He holds degrees in economics, education, spent two decades in the fertilizer fertilizer industry before making that career change to teaching and then he spent two decades as a teacher and band director in various schools in Alberta, Kuwait and Pakistan 
And as a band director and a religious teacher, he created the band director brand for a spiritual writing that blends music and spirituality. Inspired by his teaching experience, Donald turned classroom episodes into modern-day parables in his book, The Band Director's Lessons About Life. A similar melding of musical and spiritual journeys produced the handy The Band Director's Pocket Guide to Spiritual Growth. He's also turned his spiritual insight to the crazy state of affairs in our world with this book, What the Hell is Going On? And uh, the, it's theme from this book that is going to be what we're talking about today. So without further ado, hi, Donald. Welcome. Well, hello, Dr. Ken. It's a, it's a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me on. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad you reached out to me and, uh, you know, you gave me a preview of the book. And one of the things that I discern when I, you know, check out information is not only, of course, you know, what, what is the accuracy of the, the you know, facts in there and the things like that, but really around the energy of it or the attitude, that some people would say if they're not into energy work. And so when I read that line about, you know, um, in the spiritual war, our strategy is love, our tactics, forgiveness, our weapon is nonviolent, non-cooperation. I'm like, yep, he's one of my guys. <laughs> he's definitely got <laughs> Come on the show. Yeah, because... Uh, there's a lot of fight out there, and uh, even some of my best friends, we have disagreements, um, loving, but disagreements about how things should, should in quotes, um, change in order for us to get to that place of love, peace, joy, prosperity for all. I tend to be the one that's, you know, um, as much as, as possible, you know, nonviolent, non-cooperation, that kind of thing, whereas there are other so-called truther factions out there, um, other uh, organizations, let's just say, uh, whether they're working with off-world beings or not, whatever they claim, are literally, um, you know, let's just say, taking people that are supposedly the bad guys and either killing them, destroying them, or making them disappear somehow, um, somehow, you know, to help humanity get to a higher vibration. So we have a difference of opinion. Uh, but I like yours very much, The Peaceful Solution. But before we kind of dive into the, the juicy bo- uh, bits, uh, can you tell us about why did you decide to, to write this book in the first place? Uh, good question. It's, it's, not what I, it's not what I wanted to do. You know, so many times in life we find we're, we're directed or pushed mm. along onto a certain path, kicking and screaming, right? <laughs> <laughs> But um, and, and that's kind of how it was with this particular book. But before I even get into that, Karen, I want to just, you know, you, you brought up so many things just in what you, you said in the last few minutes that um, I, I want to touch on one of them. And that is the, the fact that, that you, and, and this is your superpower, you talked about superpowers, right, is that you are able to, um, to, to feel energetically uh, things, and I I really think that that is one of the great uh, advancements that we're going to see in this century, is mm. that people are going to gradually become more attuned to their spiritual nature, to their intuition, if you want to call it that, to their six senses, and and we are going to learn to be more guided by our hearts and our spirits rather than by our intellect. And uh, this mm-hmm. opens up a whole, a whole kind of spiritual uh, a topic area there. But, you know, many of the other, 
you know, podcast hosts and people that I've reached out to and stuff about my book, you know, they quite rightly on an intellectual level say, well, okay, let, let, let me read the book and, you know, I'll see if it's something that interests me or not. And, of course, that's perfectly illogical and rational. But if we can, you know, learn to connect with our intuition, with our feeling center, with, with that superpower that, that you express so beautifully and so fully, then, you know, we, we can, it's another way of knowing, mm. right? And, uh, and, and you were able to, you know, assess my book, you know, very, very quickly by accessing that ability of yours to know something in a way that if you're just operating on the intellectual level, on the mental or mind level, that, that you know, you, we just don't connect with that type of information and so hats off to you uh, one of the things it's one of the things that i love and admire about you karen uh well thank you so much for for that acknowledgement i really appreciate you for saying that um in fact it's, it's kind of funny because um it does it's very practical as well right because it saves me time because uh, I love yeah. to do bazillion things at once. It's just part of my personality. I, I love so many things, and I want to do so many things. I want to change the world so many ways uh, that, you know, we get people uh, emailing us or calling us or just asking to be on the podcast and different things, do, being JV partners and things like that. And the bigger my mailing list, the more calls we get. <laughs> and, um, right. you know, I just don't have time to, like, read everybody's book like back to front and make a decision that way. It's not really practical anymore. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, because <laughs> I didn't look at your book for like what a year or something. Anyway, so uh, it it it, yeah. it just takes a while. And so, literally, somebody the other day just uh, said, "Oh, we have this great person should be in a podcast." Blah blah blah. And I literally just saw the title of the email and I just felt into it. And I'm like, no. Like a muscle test, yeah. God still said no. But not because they were a bad person, not because anything they were doing was wrong or bad or anything like that. I just knew that my people would be like, eh, <laughs> eh, and they wouldn't listen to it. Yeah, they, weren't, they wouldn't be that interested because we had a lot of people similar stuff they're talking about. And, and I didn't care about how many, you know, how many people he had on his list or how popular he was or whatever. I, it, it didn't matter. So I just said, no, thank you. That was about it. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's dive yeah, into just, you now. What's going on with you? Okay. So, I mean, I, I had retired from teaching. I'd published my, my first book, which is a book of, of modern-day parables inspired by my teaching experience where, you know, from time to time as a teacher, there's something happens in school or in the classroom, mm-hmm. and we call it a teachable moment, right? Right. Where, you know, some little thing emerges and and it suddenly strikes you that, you know, kids, there's actually a bigger lesson here happening right now than the one I had planned for this moment. So, and so, so I, cool. at some point I started writing down some of those experiences and then drawing a spiritual lesson out of them. And, and that's kind of how I saw my new career as a spiritual author and speaker. And, you know, I published this book, the band director's lessons about life in December of 2019. Now, in retrospect, we know what was happening in December of 2019 in Wuhan, mm-hmm. China. But you know, the vast majority of us in the world didn't know about it, paid no attention to it. And um, 
So I it did some touring around Alberta. I, I live in Alberta in Canada. I did some touring around Alberta when the book came out and, and sold a bunch of books. And I, I'm not well known. I'm, I'm not a celebrity. So, you know, I, I need to go around and sell the book and the ideas and sell myself. And, and when people hear what I have to say, a lot of people resonate with it. So mm-hmm. it was somewhat successful. Although the beginning of March 2020, I was just in the process of setting up a cross Canada book selling tour when the whole world shut down. Right. <laughs> like this, this was unbelievable to me. So, you know, that's when I really started asking the question that became the title of the book, which, what the hell's going on? <laughs> but, like, you know, by all, uh, you know, the information that, that seemed available at the time, okay, it's a bad flu, but we've had bad flus before. Like, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. And, like many people, it, it totally disrupted my life and, and, and my new business, which I was just trying to get started in 2020, right. really. And so, like, I was mad, madder in the hatter, you might say, to use polite <laughs> language. And, and um, so, yeah, I had, it, it completely rearranged all of my plans and goals for 2020. And, and so, naturally, I started looking into, you know, what, what's going on? And um, by the end of 2020, I started to, I, I do a fairly regular a blog um, from my website. You know, I started writing a blog post about this. And then it got to be too long because I try to keep my blog post short. And then, I, okay, so I'll, I'll, make, I'll, I'll write a series of blog posts. Mm-hmm. But they, they, got, they still got too long and there was too many of them in series. <laughs> and I got a little feedback from readers that told me, obviously, kids, they're not getting it. Um, like there's, there's too many ideas here to put into even a series of blog posts. I'm going to have to write a book, but it'll just be a short book, like a little booklet kind of a thing, like maybe, maybe 30,000 words or something. Well, 200,000 words later, I finished wow. the first draft. Oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, one of my first beta readers said split it into four books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard enough to sell one book. I'm not going to try to sell four books. So, like that's kind of how I got into it. I was I was pushed into it because, you know, what I had planned to do, and like I, I mentioned in my first book, Comparables, if you want to make God laugh, make plants. <laughs> so, I like that. Yeah, like, I love like that. All, all, all of my plans for 2020 didn't work out. Like my top goals, okay, scratch that, scratch that. Like what am I going to do this year? Like what am I uh, holy cow. And everybody's lives were thrown into turmoil and disrupted and, Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that's why I say I was kind of pushed into this book, kicking and screaming. It wasn't at all what I had in mind. Um, but you know, I started, the more I researched and trying to figure out what was going on, the more I realized, hold it, this is, this is a bigger picture than I thought. This is a bigger picture than anyone thought. And, you know, I'd, I'd known for many years that some things that we were being told just didn't make sense. I mean, I, right. I had followed the as many of us who are older have, I mean, I've followed this whole global warming stuff for over 30 years because the, the whole campaign is over 30 years long. Now, for the most of that time, I just thought, okay, well, it doesn't make sense. It's, you know, a mistake. Well, mistakes are made in science. And you know what? Eventually, you know, cooler heads will prevail and logic and reason and evidence will emerge. Well, after 30 years, this isn't happening. It's getting worse <laughs> and worse. And, and so, okay, like, uh, what, do we, what do we do about that? And, you know, I'd also seen, going back a quarter of a century, um, I, I completed my economics degree in 1990, and I had lived through 
the inflation of the 1970s. Some of our, you know, the older right. listeners will remember that the the turmoil and and like I came of age in in the 1970s. I graduated from high school in 1976. So you know, in the 1970s, I was interested in what was going on in the world, like most people that come into the teenage years and and you start to take an interest in what's going on in the world and you know I read Time magazine and stuff like that and you know the 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 type of information and the media of communication that we used at that time we didn't obviously have the internet in the 1970s so I was interested in all these things and um so you know I remember many of the sort of the economic ideas that all you know, if, oh, it's, it's cost push inflation. And here in Canada, we famously had wage and price controls to try to control inflation. And in the early 1980s, I, I developed more of an interest in economics and eventually went on to finish a degree in economics. And, you know, in, in the 1980s, uh, um, uh, what's his name? You know, I, I blame my white hair from my memory log, but names just disappear in my mind. It'll come back to me. Well, you know, you have more important things to remember. <laughs> anyway, uh, I mean, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, one of the most famous American economists um, of that time, uh, he famously said, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And, you know, kind of my hero in economics, my, uh, maybe hero is not the right word, but who the, the what I think, who I think is the greatest economist of the 20th century, Ludwig von Mises. And it was reading his works that really got me uh, to develop an interest in, in economics. And, you know, it's exactly the same thing. In, inflation comes from, um, you know, a rapid increase in the supply of money. It, if there isn't mm-hmm. an increase in the supply of money, you can't have inflation. Prices of some, some things go up and prices of other things go down. Uh, th- this is a change in relative prices. This happens all the time. But you don't have generalized inflation unless you have an increase in the supply of money. And, you know, so in the 1980s, I became well aware of this. And, and um, uh, as I was doing my economics degree, uh, just delved into a series of books written by a famous Canadian economist, Thomas Kershane, uh, formerly an un- economics professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And uh, you know, he explained in detail what was going on in terms of the money supply and monetary, uh, you know, the behavior of the monetary authorities in Canada and stuff during this period of inflation in the 1970s. So, in, in my economics degree that I did during the 1980s, I had a real interest in monetary policy. It was my number one interest. And so starting in about the mid-1990s, when monetary authorities all over the world started doing like things that didn't make sense <laughs> to an economist, I thought, like, what are these guys doing? And mm-hmm. some people might remember Alan Greenspan's you know, now famous mm. comment from the late 1990s when we were seeing this great stock market boom, which we now call the dot-com bubble. You yeah. know, he, he blamed investors for irrational exuberance. That was his term. And I thought, Alan Greenspan, you know better. Like, what are you saying? It's, it's that you've held interest rates too low for too long and you've created a, an increase in money. It's a, it's, a, it's a financial bubble due to a rapid increase in money supply. You know that. How can you blame investors for, like, this didn't make sense. Wow. And so that was my first, that was my first in, kind of 
experience where I started to realize, hold it, these people aren't idiots, because we hear that all the time now, don't we? Our leaders are idiots. Our 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 um, oh, I all the time. People are saying they're idiots, and I and I said, oh no, I learned a quarter of a century ago. These people aren't idiots. No, they're liars. No, they they're they know idiots. what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they know what they're doing. They're just lying about it because it's not possible for you know, all of these monetary authorities, the people who run central banks and finance ministers all over the world, these guys have PhDs in economics. To say they're all idiots, it, it doesn't make sense. They're not, they have to know what they're doing. Well, and they the usually earn a lot mother- more money than the rest of us, so, you know, I can't yeah. say they're idiots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean it's, this is not the pattern of idiots. Idiots don't get advanced university degrees, don't get you know, themselves into positions of, of uh, power and influence. No, you don't get there by being an idiot. So this, this is just not a logical assumption. And um, anyway, so that, that, that's an important thing. Should, should we get on to talk about patterns? Because that's a pattern. Yeah, let's talk about patterns. So we, we know, you know, well, you know, how you came to write the book. And, um, and that is a lot of words, although I'm very wordy myself. My... <laughs> My first book was 416 pages, and you beat me on this one <laughs> in your book. Um, but yeah, let's talk about uh, pattern recognition because uh, for me, Don, when I, I mean, and I'm very, very late to the <laughs> so-called conspiracy game. So I was looking at these patterns now with the pandemic as a medical doctor, right? There's a certain um, education set that I have. And that's when the alarm, I mean, a little bit before that, but, but majorly alarm bells went off and went, whoa, 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 what? What are we doing? That makes yeah. no sense at all, okay? And then, and then I'm a big yeah. picture person, so it's easier for me to see the big picture and go, wait, 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 wait. Connect that dot to that. Oh, boy, when you connect those two, oh, that's not good. <laughs> right? So tell us about seeing yeah. the big picture. Well, you know, one thing, and I... It wasn't at the beginning. I think I'd written the whole first draft before I really realized that, that the key to understanding this is pattern recognition. And that kind of, um, I developed that uh, more in the subsequent, like I went through a lot of drafts. It was, I mean, I finished the first draft in, in May of 2021. And so it was almost a year and a half after that that the book's finally published. And, and I call it the seventh draft. So it, everyone got better. So the first mm-hmm. draft, in retrospect, it, it, it was really bad. But, but nonetheless, it, it got the basics down. So, you know, I realized that, no, what, what we're seeing is certain patterns. And, you know, in, in the book, I use the, the, little, the little story as an illustration. This little vignette that has stuck in my mind from decades ago from a, a TV sitcom, right, where a, the scene is the doctor's office and, and this – uh, patient is kind of going on with his self-diagnosis, you know, oh, doc, you know, this is what I've got, you know, and, and I'm sure doctors, you're a doctor, I'm sure you kind of laugh about this, and okay, you tell me your symptoms, I'll do the diagnosis, but, you know, but anyway, so this, this patient is waxing on with his self-diagnosis, and the doctor's kind of half listening and half looking at an x-ray in his hand, and when the patient pauses for a second, the doctor hands him the x-ray and, and says, well, you're pretty knowledgeable. What do you think about this x-ray? And the patient looks at it for a second or two, and he declares, that's a compound fracture of the tibia. Doctor chuckles a bit and says, really? Actually, that's a perfectly healthy set of lungs. 
<laughs> we think, we think, you know, what an idiot. Like, how can you mistake, you know, lungs for legs? Well, everyone knows that an x-ray photograph is a picture, black and white picture. It's in shades of light and dark. Mm. Well, obviously, the patient was not familiar with that image, that pattern of light and dark. And so mm-hmm. he mistook it, what he was looking at, for something else. And it's a beautiful metaphor for what all of us are doing in the world. We look at the events around us in the world, and we don't understand the patterns that we're looking at, and so we think we're looking at something else. Or, or we, think it's just ran- we think these things are just random. You know, like looking at, and that's, I use that, that little analogy or metaphor, too, of, of a connected dots picture, right? You, yep. all, almost everybody's done those, right? Just a sheet of paper with a whole bunch of random dots on it. There's no pattern. There's no picture. But once you take your pencil and you start connecting one dot to the next dot to the, in the right order, then a pattern emerges, right? A picture emerges before it looked just random. But once, once we are able to perceive that differently, we're able to see a pattern and recognize what it's a pattern of. And so, you know, we look at the events in the world and we either look random with no pattern at all, or they look like the pattern of something else. But for example, with COVID, we think, well, oh, this, you know, this is a novel virus and our medical authorities are doing their best, um, you know, with, with goodwill to try to respond to a novel medical situation. Right, when, that's what when we understand, well, Yeah, that's what most people think. But when we understand the patterns better, we see, hold it, this, what we're looking at is clearly not the pattern of goodwilled people responding to, you know, doing their best to respond to a novel situation. It's not that pattern at all. It actually fits the pattern of fraud. Right, which, right. Which is, okay, what, 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 what is the pattern of fraud? So yeah, exactly. I use, I use, the, I use, I use the, the example of a great business fraud, which, again, some, some of our listeners will, may well remember. It was the great Briex gold fraud. Now, Briex was a Canadian company, and, and there's lots of Canadian mining companies. We've been doing mining in Canada for probably 200 years. So uh, Canada has a, a great wealth of experience um, in mining, in the mining business, and Canadians are, uh, work all over the world in the mining business because uh, we have such a, a depth of knowledge and experience in that area. So it was a Canadian mining company. Oh, sorry, not mining, but gold exploration company. And its shares traded in the Toronto Stock Exchange as many – uh, mineral exploration companies do. It had experienced senior management uh, who were known and respected in the industry. It was doing exploration for gold in Indonesia, which may sound a little strange on the surface, but Indonesia is actually home to one of the world's largest, uh, richest, and most profitable gold mines in the whole world. So it, it's a logical place geologically to look. So on, and as it released the results of its uh, drilling program over a period of years, beginning in the late 1980s and going into the early 1990s, it became apparent that they had discovered uh, the world's richest undiscovered, undeveloped gold property. And over the years, as their drilling results and data were released, you know, um, mining analysts started following the company. 
uh, stock analysts started recommending the company. More and more articles started appearing about it in the financial press and in, in, the, in the mining. Um, they were all like newsletters and things like that at that time. It was pre-internet. It was all uh, written on paper and mailed out to people. So like all of this is true. All of this is, is actual fact. So where was the fraud? It turned out to be the, the greatest and most sophisticated case of the oldest gold mining fraud trick in the books. They salted the assays. Now, hmm. in mining, you, dr- you drill down into rocks uh, and you pull out rock drill cores going down hundreds of feet. And then you take those drill cores, uh, take little little sections of the rock, grind them up into a powder, and send the powder to a lab for a mineral analysis. That's what we call the assays. So in salting an assay, you simply sprinkle a little gold dust into the ground-up rock before you send it to the lab. And then, <laughs> you know, and actually the lab says, hey, you have a significant amount of gold in this, <laughs> in this assay. So, so um, the... Um, by meticulous, very meticulous, very careful. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't just, you know, as I described, it wasn't just, oh, let's sprinkle a little in this one. No, no, it was a very carefully measured so that they were able to produce, you know, um, a lab results that re- reflected a perfectly normal gold mineralization, but a very rich one. So the hmm. results were, be- were believable. Right, other mining experts that looked at the results said, "Okay, yeah, this, uh, you know, this is how this particular type of mineralized uh, deposit, you know, happens. This is, yeah, this is uh, typical of this type of mineralization, and yeah, we would expect to see things like this. And then a year later, they have more drilling results and say, yeah, okay, it's, this is developing. Yeah, this, this is a normal gold deposit. So they fooled the best experts in the business. A couple lessons we can look." A couple lessons we can learn from this. Number one is it doesn't take very many people to conspire to commit fraud. And it turned out that that it's possible that only one person in the whole world knew about this fraud. That was the chief geologist, Michael de Guzman. Even the company president later claimed to to know nothing about it. And he was, you know, various charges were brought against him in court, and he was acquitted on on charges. But um, he said, I I didn't know anything about this, (laughs) you know. And he was, he was, well, the the evidence uh, supported him that he didn't know about it. Hmm. Um, The the evidence seemed to suggest that only the chief geologist knew about it, but it doesn't take very many people to conspire to commit fraud. You just need to fool a lot of people. Mm. And, and he did. He fooled the best experts in the, in the business in the whole world. He fooled millions of investors, some of whom, you know, mortgaged, as we've seen in other booms and, and things, you know, mortgaged their houses and invested their whole life savings into Briex and then lost their whole life savings and were bankrupted. And so this is, an, this is another thing about fraud. It always has a purpose to collect money and power from many uh-huh. hands into, into few. So in business fraud, it's mainly about money. You're trying to collect money from a lot of other people into your hands. Uh, with other, um, with the many that most of the frauds we're seeing worldwide today, it's more about power. 
Yes, a lot of people are getting rich. Money is involved. Money and power always tend to go together. But it's mainly about power, not about money. So uh, and, and another lesson we can learn from Briex is that it's actually not too difficult to fool a lot of people with a quasi-scientific fraud. Mm. Briex used all of the, the normally accepted scientific methods common in the industry. Like they did everything right. You know, they followed all the, all the regulations. They, you know, submitted their forms and all the, you know, all the kind of stuff that goes on. Most people won't, won't know about it. But, you know, and other mining experts looked at their results and, you know, said, yeah, they did this right. The, the laboratory analysis is, are being done properly by reputable labs and all this sort of thing. So, like, it's not too hard, actually. And so, you know, let me just kind of take a sidestep here and talk about, because you've mentioned the term conspiracy theory. I try not to use that term mm-hmm. because it's meaningless. It's really only a yeah. psychological warfare term. Exactly. And, and, of course, there are many, many terms like this. I try not to use the terms of our adversaries because <laughs> uh, they, they are meaningless. I mean, we think about that term. Many people will know that that essentially the term conspiracy theory was popularized by the CIA, turned into a psychological warfare term by the CIA way back in the 1960s when they used it to label anybody who questioned uh, the official story on the Kennedy assassination. There's all your conspiracy theorists. Well, hold it. No, how can how come there were, you know, they called it the magic bullet, right? How can one bullet uh, like, cause three or four different wounds coming from different directions like you know the one bullet that was shot from behind and went through and then turned around and came back and hit the governor of texas from the front and you know all this kind of stuff like this doesn't how can this be anybody who even asked questions was called a conspiracy theorist and then just kind of kicked to the side of the road and and it's used in this way it's just okay so like this person is crazy so you don't have to listen to them you don't have to yeah. pay. And that's what it's used as. And when we think about it, and this, this touches, because, you know, everything that's that talked about in the book on a material level in terms of physical evidence, and most of the book is about physical evidence. But as you know, and as most of our listeners know, that everything in the physical world springs from spiritual, springs from spiritual reality. And so that's why I say this is fundamentally a spiritual war. So. Mm-hmm. Like, right, because you know, we've manifested when, when, this in our reality together. Yes, <laughs> yes, we have. Absolutely, of course we have. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and many people understand that. Many people don't, of course, but many course. people do. So, so when you talk about a conspiracy theory, no, we're not talking about theory. We're talking about history. Mm. And, and again, the great economist Ludwig von Mises has a book that's called Theory and History. He talks about the important difference. Now, on a spirit, on a spiritual level, we can understand this I- I- even more deeply because history is all about things that actually occurred in material reality. These are real events, real people, real events, real physical things. This is material. But but when we talk about theory. And this is a, such an important point that I, I try to explain in the book, and I don't understand why nobody, I mean nobody, talks about it. Because we, we can clarify our thinking and our understanding if we clarify this one point. What exists in material reality 
and what does not exist in material reality. Because, for example, theory is all ideas. Right. Theory, ideas all, without all, any backup in physical reality. Well, theory does not exist in physical reality. Theory exists in our mind. Theory is ideas. Mm. So things that don't exist in material reality are ideas, our mind, our consciousness, um, uh, concepts, and also categories. This is, this is important when we get into looking at mass formation. And, and, and uh, philosophers uh, and learned people have known this for thousands of years, that a category does not have a physical existence. And I use the example, you know, briefly in the book about chairs. I'm sitting down, you're probably sitting on a chair. Most of our listeners are probably sitting on something that could be described as a chair, maybe in their car, in a, a seat, right, a chair. So all, there are billions and billions of chairs in the world. All of us understand what a chair is. But when we talk about the category of chairs, the category itself is an idea. It's a concept. It's a mental construct. It does not exist in material reality, but it exists in our minds, in our in mm-hmm. consciousness. And so, and so theory does not exist in material reality. Theory exists in what we, what we might call non-material reality of some good. It exists in our minds. And so theory cannot be history. And we need to be very, if we're talking about history, we're not talking about theory. So when people say, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, it's a, no, it's not theory at all. It's history. History. Now, well, and, and Don, just to interject just for a sec, some of the history we've been taught in schools are completely fabricated, and that's very confusing. Yeah, because in a sense, they are conspiracy theories, right? Because what we do, right, <laughs> we take the, and, and this is, this is in, in, in a nutshell, the work of a historian is to sift through the physical reality, the facts, the events, the people that really existed, the things that happened, is to sift through the physical reality as much information as, as the historian can gather and then try to explain it, try to understand it. So our theories or our understanding or our worldview is the meaning that we put on what we, what we see and perceive and understand in physical reality, right? It's the meaning we put on it. And we say, oh, this happened because this happened. This was the cause of this event. You know, that, all of that stuff, in a sense, is what we call history is mostly the explanation for why things happened, right? And um, so in a certain sense, that's theory. The events themselves are, are the history, but a big mm-hmm. part of history is explaining why events happen. So, so the term conspiracy theory is, is meaningless on that level, too, because, you know, we're talking about history, not theory. And the very idea that, well, if it's a conspiracy, that obviously that's wrong. Well, conspiracies happen all the time. <laughs> we know this. We even have, that's why we have this term in law, for goodness sakes. Thousands and thousands, maybe millions of people have been convicted of conspiracy to commit this or conspiracy to commit that, right? All of us are, right. ter- are familiar with this legal, legal term. Of course, there's conspiracies. There, you know, anytime two or more people work together uh, to do something malicious, you might say, that's a conspiracy. And, mm. you know, Catherine Austin Fitz says, says if, if you're not a part of a conspiracy, you need to start one. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my goodness, that is so yes. funny. In fact, she said, she said, you know, Catherine Austin Fitz says that when she graduated from university at the first, and she went to work on Wall Street, she said, you know, my job was as a conspiracy generator. Like that, that's that's what we did. Wow. <laughs> Our wow. job was to was to create conspiracies. So the idea that conspiracies don't happen is is ridiculous. And the more people are connected with the kind of the inner workings of power and money and stuff, the more they know, oh, yeah, conspiracies happen all the time. That's what we do. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the whole term is, is, is psychological warfare. But anyway, that, that's a bit of a distraction. So shall we get in? So we've, we've, we've talked about pattern recognition, how important mm-hmm. that is to understanding what's going on so you can understand, recognize the patterns and what we're seeing, and then the pattern of fraud, because pat- I see the pattern of fraud everywhere. And I think maybe the next most important thing is this very, very important pattern that Professor Matthias Desmond has, has helped me and everybody else to understand that he calls mass formation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that? that. Okay, I'm going to touch on it really briefly, and, and I'll direct our listeners to just, you know, just search out uh, Matthias Desmet, and his last name is spelled D-E-S-M-E-T. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Ghent in Belgium, and his area of specialization is this group psychological phenomenon that he refers to as mass formation. It's also called crowd formation because it, it, uh, it stems out of the study and the analysis of crowd behavior. And all of us probably have had some personal experience of behaving differently in a group of people than we would behave normally. For example, like a, a gang of boys will do things that none of the boys would ever do individually on their own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm almost 65 years old, but I remember some of the things that I did as a gang of boys running around our small town in, in the <laughs> in summer, summer evenings and things like that. And, yeah, we got into all kinds of trouble and did things that I never would have done on my own. And afterwards, I even remember afterwards thinking – I, like, why did I do that? Like, we raid gardens. I don't want to give any of our younger listeners any, any ideas here, but it's not so common now. But in, no, in those days, we, especially in the late summer, we used to raid gardens. I mean, people still had, you know, almost everybody had a garden in their backyard, and they grew carrots and lettuce and cabbages and radish, you know, all this stuff. Oh, we'd go rip up, you know, rip up carrots and, and rip ears of corn off it, you know. And, and, you know, for the most part, we wouldn't eat them. We'd just kind of leave them scattered along. And, and afterwards, I remember thinking, because we had a garden at our house, too, and I helped them. You just did you the know, work. Helped them, <laughs> did the work in the garden. And afterwards, I, I remember thinking sometimes, like, I don't know, why, like, why did we do that? I'd be really <laughs> mad if somebody did that to my garden. And, like, we didn't even eat the food. And, like, why did we do that? So, like, every, every one of us, you know, at, you get in a party. And sure, partly it's the alcohol, but you do things in a group of people that you would never do all by yourself. And so th- this is a field of psychological research. Why do, pe- why do humans behave that way? So the idea of mass formation ha- grow- has grown out of this, this psychological investigation into why, why do people behave so differently in a crowd? And when you get like a mob, as we call it, right, mob mm-hmm. psychology, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, mobs have have murdered people, have lynched people and murdered them. You know, and you think, man, like, how does that happen? So a couple of, a couple of important things in this study. And when it happens on the level of a whole, of a whole society, because uh, we're not just talking here about a crowd of, a, you know, a gang of boys raiding gardens in the neighborhood. When this happens on the level of a whole society, Matthias Desmond says there's a number of conditions that must exist 
before this can happen. And uh, there's several of them. I won't go into detail. But, but one of them is that there has to be a lot of free-floating anxiety. People feel mm-hmm. anxious about things, and they don't really know why. And uh, this has, has uh, in, in my own personal life, this has seemed to me really strange. For example, in the last several years of my teaching experience, of, you know, uh, not that long ago, right? I just officially retired in, in 2019. But, you know, I remember on multiple occasions, our administrators, teachers and vice principals at staffings and stuff, they'd remind the teachers, you know, and they'd say, you know what, you know, go, take it easy on the kids, guys, because, you know, kids are under so much stress these days. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? Like, hmm. how, how, how can these kids be under stress? Like, almost none of these kids are as stressed as I was in high school in the early 70s. I mean, we had, we had a real threat at that time of the whole world being destroyed by, by a nuclear war. I mean, this was within less, this was, you know, within a decade of, of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was a real threat. The world came very close to, you know, complete destruction in the nuclear exchange in the Cuban Missile Crisis. This hung over the heads of all of us who were growing up at that time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of, of stress that was going on. And kids today, almost none of them are as busy as I was in high school. I was involved in all kinds of things. I was, I was really busy. You know, I was They're busy on their phones. And, and but that, <laughs> only, later, only later did I come to realize how much stress that actually is causing everyone today. Mm-hmm. And yeah. people don't realize it. That's part of today's sort of... Um, uh, a free-floating anxiety. People are stressed out. They're anxious over this stuff, and they don't know why. And a lot of it is this, this social media, this phones, our interaction with machines instead of, instead of uh, interaction with people. This is extremely stressful. So I think that's part of the stress in the world today. But anyway, getting back to mass formation, th- this free-floating anxiety is really, really important. So the, Matthias Desmond says, if then, an authority figure comes along and presents a story, a narrative, an explanation that explains for people why they're feeling anxious and gives what he calls an object of anxiety. He said, this is why we're feeling it's, it's their fault. You know, this is the problem that's causing all this anxiety in the world. For example, as all of us know, right, in the 1930s, late in the 1920s and the early 30s in Germany, you know, the, the Nazis blamed the Jews. They also blamed the bankers and the Western allies. But what we remember most is blaming the Jews. It's their fault. That's why we lost the war. It was these, these backstabbing guys at home, you know, like the, the German soldiers unmatched. We should have won World War I. It was We were stabbed in the back by these Jews and bankers at home. That's what, you know, so, so people are able to take their free-floating anxiety, and blame it on someone else. Now, we understand this in a spiritual sense, right, that we need to take responsibility, we need to take ownership for things and not blame other people for what's happening to us. And, uh, but it's very comforting to be able to do that, right, to be able to blame somebody else, just something outside of ourselves. Oh, yeah, it's the Jews, it's the bankers. We got we to, gotta, like, do something to stop those guys. And today mm-hmm. it's, Oh, it's the virus. That's why, you know, we got to stop the virus. Or it's climate change. It's carbon. We have to stop this. And now it's nitrogen, for goodness sakes. Before long, we're going to outlaw the whole periodic table. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, 
got to stop carbon. We got to stop nitrogen. Nobody stops to think, um, like most of your body is carbon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, really. Carbon. Oh my gosh. Like, like, what, how can there be carbon? Anyway, so we're going to blame this stuff outside ourselves. It's the, it's the conspiracy theorists. It's the anti-vaxxers. It's, it's the racists. It's the, like we we yeah. put our anxiety on this object of anxiety. And one thing that I add to uh, what Matthias Desmond explains is I've noticed that, that all of these object of anxiety, objects of anxiety, are, are things that do not exist in material reality. For example, the Jews is a category. Mm. As a category, it does not exist in material reality. Now, you can point to individual people and say, this person is a member of the Jewish religion. That mm-hmm. person exists in material reality. But when we, but, but the fundamental truth is you can never destroy something that does not exist in material reality. Oh, you cannot wow. destroy something that doesn't have a material existence. But you can destroy individual people if you call them Jews. You can never destroy the bourgeoisie. That's a category. But you mm-hmm. can kill individual people if you call them bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. You can never destroy, um, for example, racism. That's a category. That's a, it's a mental construct. It does not exist in material reality, but you can, just, you can kill individual people if you call them racists. That's part of the reason. That's part of the reason for the very small handful of labels that we see used against people. This is intentional. It fits into the whole process of mass formation. And these people, that's what we talked about, all these, these unvaxxed people. The unvaxxed, that's a category. Yep. You cannot destroy the unvaxxed or the anti-vaxxers. These are categories. But you can destroy individual people if you call them unvaxxed. If you put that label on them, you can destroy. So, you know, you remember, and all of our listeners will remember, it talked about, oh, we need to separate these people that are unvaxxed. They're unclean. Hitler did exactly the same thing with the Jews. He started out, this started out as a medical thing. Oh, these Jews yeah. carry diseases. They're, they're, they need to be separated. You need to like have the you know different you know different part different sides of the street, different parts of the of the bus. Uh, just you know, just, you know, mm-hmm. they, we have to separate them from society so we won't be contaminated. This started out as a medical thing. Like the parallels between what's happening in the whole world today and what happened in Nazi Germany are so incredible. When talk about pattern terror. recognition, right? Like exactly. I wasn't even there, exactly. and and I'm not very big on history, and even I can see that. You know, my yeah, friend was yeah. in the Hollywood. He's an actor, and I uh, was very very depressed. You know, through the pandemic, they actually made them wear yellow wristbands and put them on a separate bus to bus them to and from the set. He showed me the picture sure. of the bus. I was like, oh, just like the star of David armbands, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I felt bad for so him. many. Oh, so, goodness. so, so this, pro, so, so Matthias Desmond says, so we have this process. It's uh, the, the initial conditions that are necessary. And one of the big ones is this free floating anxiety. Then the narrative is presented that puts everybody's free floating anxiety on this object of anxiety. People are able to come together and engage in this noble struggle against the object of anxiety. And they, this is a psychological phenomenon. It's very important to realize this is not a cognitive 
phenomenon. It's psychological. And there's, there's a great sort of emotional and psychological relief that comes then from being able to name the anxiety, to engage mm-hmm. in a struggle against it. And this is a great coming together. It brings people, it gives them a purpose in their life, and it gives them a great sense of belonging. And it leads to a sort of a, uh, a mental intoxication. And, 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 what it, and Matthias Desmond says that this process is not like hypnosis. It's exactly the same as hypnosis. Uh, and all of us, all of us have seen hypnotized people, right? Maybe we've been to some kind of a stage hypnotist where, you know, he gets people up on stage and hypnotizes them and, you know, they act like dogs or, or ducks and go I around the stage flapping <laughs> their arms <laughs> and quacking like and things like that. You know, and, and all of us, you know, roar with laughter how funny it is. And, but what, what has the hypnotist done? The hypnotist has, has altered this person's perception of reality so that there are certain parts of reality that they simply are unable to perceive. Mm-hmm. And, and that there are other things that they mm-hmm. perceive as reality that are, in fact, absolute fantasy. Well, <laughs> you're, you're a dog, Right. So mm-hmm. this is a fantasy. And they get down on the stage on the all hands and knees and go around barking and stuff like that. You know, so they, this is their perception of reality has been altered. And this is exactly what happens in mass formation. And these people, and, you know, when the lights came on, when I first heard Matthias Desmond talk about it, I said, that explains it. Like probably all of us have had this experience in this COVID fraud and in the climate fraud of trying to talk to people and present them with like scientific and physical evidence. And it's like you're talking to a wall. Like they just don't get it. Nope. They're not listening. <laughs> you can't talk to them. And, and I said, well, that explains it. Like all I've, I've tried for like decades to try to convince people like, no, like this. Okay, that it can't be carbon dioxide. Like, look, look at these, look at these facts. Look at the science, and it's just like talking to a wall. They they literally cannot perceive. Their perception of reality has absolutely been constrained by 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 buying into this. By the, it is a type of hypnosis. It starts with this this narrative, which is an ideology. Matthias Desmond says it's usually a quasi-scientific ideology. For example, mm-hmm. the Nazis used eugenic race theory, which was not just a, a Nazi thing. Like in, in, the 19, in the early 20th century, including the 1920s and up to the 1930s, this was very, a very popular uh, idea and, and theory, you might call it, amongst intellectuals all over the world, the United States and Canada and Britain and France and everywhere. It wasn't just Germany. Eugenic race theory was very, very popular. And the problem is that Hitler discredited, Hitler discredited it by actually putting its ideas into practice. <laughs> the, whole, the whole world realized how horrific this is. But, you know, this eugenic race theory, social Darwinism, which, again, these are theories. These are theories. They exist only in the mind. And they're quasi-scientific theories. They're not really based on science, but they appear scientific. And the the climate fraud and the COVID fraud, it's quasi-scientific ideology. Mm. And. And you add that with propaganda, with psychological warfare, which, as I point out in one or two chapters of the book, is sophisticated 
beyond our wildest dreams. You know, psychological mm-hmm. warfare, as it's, as it's practiced nowadays, it's, th- this stuff sounds like conspiracy theory, but it's being done. <laughs> and we, we know it's being done. Well, I mean, if you look for the evidence, you know it's being done. That's so why I present some of the evidence in our book. So you have an ideology, usually a quasi-scientific ideology, that leads to mass formation, that leads to this, this kind of hypnosis, that leads to this struggle against an object of anxiety, which is non-material, which cannot be destroyed, but in the process you end up murdering people. And so well, that's why. Don, you know, so, yep. yeah, so, so, you know, you're talking about the, the labels of, you know, like you can't kill racism, but you can kill someone who you label a racist, right? Could that not be yeah. also be reversed in a way to say, well, uh, Illuminati or Cabal is a label, right? So you can't kill, you can't get rid of those things. You can't get rid of so-called the elite, the, the whatever, because they're all labels, not real. Not real. There could be people that are labeled that or people. So I'm just curious, like, you could turn that around to the other way. Yes. You're absolutely right. In fact, I hadn't really looked at it that way, but you're absolutely right. And so, yes, you can never, you can never destroy the elites. You can never destroy the Illuminati. But there are individual people who have committed crimes. Now, I, I don't, and as I say, I, I don't, I don't recommend violence. I recommend nonviolence. Mm-hmm. However, That's what I love about you. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, <laughs> thank you. However, I mean, when people have committed crimes in our societies, well, they need to face the consequences. The, the, I mean, if you, if you commit a crime, well, you should be brought to trial and face whatever consequences there are in your legal jurisdiction for that particular crime. So the people who have committed crimes need to be brought to justice. We need to bring back justice, absolutely. But Accountability, right? Like, yes, you know, there's yes, that absolutely. article by the ethics professor that went viral about amnesty, where a lot of, you know, people are like, <laughs> funny funny right and so you know i like to say forgiveness yes amnesty no because absolutely the accountability isn't there it's one thing to go whoops we made a mistake right it's another thing to go wow uh yeah that's big mistakes that cost people their lives that cost people their livelihood their jobs everything like that i'm going to be held account i'm going to hold myself accountable to help out so what can i donate what can i do to to make you know to 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 uh, reparations, you know, for, because I, as a leadership, a uh, person in a leadership, you know, place, what would I be able to do to fix this, right? And that's very different from amnesty. Oh, it's completely different. They're completely different concepts. I mean, amnesty is a legal term, right, where you are uh, essentially... Um, um, absolved? You, yeah, you're, I was going to use that word too. You're, you're uh, absolved of, um, so you, you commit a crime and you're granted amnesty, which means that we're not going to prosecute you for your crime. You can just right. go free with no consequences whatsoever. But no, that's, that's a very different idea than the, the idea of forgiveness. And I go to mm-hmm. some pains in the book to try to explain what forgiveness is because almost everybody misunderstands forgiveness. Yes. Forgive, so forgiveness, is, yeah, forgiveness is not a gift you give to someone else. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself because if you don't forgive someone, let, let's say, uh, let's just say um, somebody 
somebody murders your child. This is the, the most difficult loss in the world to, to face, I think, is to have, is the, to have your child die before you. It's, it's mm-hmm. all out of the normal sequence of events of life. And just to have someone murder your child, this is extremely difficult. So many people, when their child is murdered, spend the rest of their lives consumed with anger and hatred and, yep. and blame. And it, just, it not only destroys the life of the child, it destroys the life of the parent. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want that in my life. I don't want that consciousness. I want to live my life in the consciousness of love and peace and joy mm-hmm. and happiness. If, if I go through blaming and, and condemning and, and holding in my, in my heart and in my soul anger and hatred against other people, then I will be consumed by those, those negative things that I don't want. So forgive them. I'm going to forgive them for their murders, for whatever crimes they've committed. I'm going to forgive them so that I can be free to live in the consciousness of love and peace and, and all that. Yeah. So it's a gift. forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves so we can be free. It doesn't affect the other person as, as, as any of us with a, you know, with a fairly solid spiritual understanding, whether you call it karma or whether you call it sin that God is going to, you know, <laughs> um, make you pay for or whatever it is. We do, in all spiritual traditions have this understanding. They call it by different names. But we are going to experience the consequences of our actions in this life or the next life. I mean, our souls are eternal. There's lots and lots of time for the consequences of our actions to play out, right? Right. Somehow, yeah, I think some people somehow, think it's like a somewhere. punishment, but it's not. It's, to me, it, it's just, um, you know, reap and sow is not a punishment thing. It's just, it's quantum law. It's universal law. That's, you know, uh, manifest. Yep. And, and, it's, and it's, all, it's all for our learning. And I think one of, one of the reasons we have time in this universe is so that we can see the consequences of our actions play out in time. Mm. Oh, I did this, and then that happened. And for our own learning, we don't always connect the cause-consequence relationship, right? So we think, so we blame the consequences on somebody else, right? Oh, I did this, but oh, look what happened. Oh, that must be somebody else's fault. Where in reality, right, the consequences that we experience are from causes that we generated. And, and we're meant to learn the lesson from that. And if, if, we, if we want to live in a consciousness of love, if we want to sow love, we have to, or if we want to reap love, we have to sow love. I mean, these are the terms Jesus used, right? As you sow, so shall you reap. If you reap anger and hatred, uh, that's, what, that's what you will sow. If you sow the, the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. If you live by the sword, you will <laughs> die by the sword. Like these are all things from the mm. Jesus said, right? <laughs> right. So well, that's one of my concerns idea. of the so-called good guys or, you know, this whole, this, I think it's just an artificial distraction of white hat, black hat thing, right? So, you know, the, the white hats are going to get rid of the bad guy, right? And I'm like, well, like you said, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Like that is not the energy of what's going to bring peace. Even though it seems like a convenient thing to get rid of the bad guys, well, how many times have people over history said, I'm getting rid of the bad guy, right? (laughs) It's their bad guy in their minds of who's bad, and they get rid of them, and then there's more violence and more violence and more violence. We we can't have peace through violence. That's at least, you know, how I feel about it personally. 
Oh, but absolutely, and I think that's, that's a common lesson of history, we could say. I mean, almost always revolutions, uh, in attempting to get rid of some bad guys, bring in a regime that it's worse than the one you got rid of. Mm. Right? You, you, you cannot bring about uh, peace, love, and prosperity through uh, violence, destruction, and, and hatred. It, 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 and we, we can understand this on a spiritual level. And then to go back to uh, following up on what you said about white hats and black hats, when we understand, and this is, again, another Pattern. sort of, uh, kind of <laughs> idea that I have added to, to the understanding of Matthias Desmond, when you understand this whole process of, of an ideology leading to mass formation, leading to totalitarianism and leading to mass murder. Totalitarianism has always led to mass murder, and we see it mm-hmm. still going on in China, for example. So mm-hmm. when you understand that, that this whole process that leads to totalitarianism and mass murder, it does not come about by simply having a bunch of, of bad guys take over society, mm-hmm. because totalitarianism is not like a classical dictatorship totalitarianism is something quite different and it comes about through an ideology and the only way to end totalitarianism with without just the complete destruction of your whole society as we saw in the second world war in the destruction of nazi germany and fascist italy just absolute complete destruction of it we don't want to go there right so the only way to destroy totalitarianism without that is to dismantle the ideology that is that is in our minds. That's our thinking. That's the way we're perceiving things. And that's, that's within us, which is why I say spiritual wars are always fought within. It's the struggle of good against evil within our own heart. Solzhenitsyn famously said, I found the line which divides good and evil runs through every human heart. Ooh. And so it does. So it does. It's our own, the only, and, and again, as at the point I make repeatedly throughout the book is we can never change another person. We can only change ourselves. And so if we, well, I'm getting on to a different point. Let me finish the point about white hats, black hats. That, that we cannot simply get rid of the bad guys and bring in some good guys. All of us are turning to, like, we, oh, the midterm elections, we're going to get rid of them. <laughs> I kind of laughed. Well, I mean, we we need to kind of fight on all fronts. So, yes, we do need to be doing everything we can on a political level to elect honest and and good uh, elected representatives and, and, you know, to bring honesty into our election process. I mean, many people are now realizing that the the whole process of elections is riddled with fraud and Mm -hmm. I mean, we just saw it in Brazil. We saw the same thing a few months ago in France. Uh, it's impossible that Macron could have been reelected. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, they had demonstrations with millions of exactly. people demonstrating in the streets against Macron. And then Macron wins again. This mm-hmm. isn't possible. It right. was obviously fraudulent. And the people of Brazil are rising up, appealed to the military, to the army, saying, look, you can see this too, and I don't know how many people follow the news there, but like there was a, a letter amongst army officers to their uh, general staff, basically hundreds and hundreds of army officers said, "Look, you, we can't stand by and see our, this. This is um, like this is essentially a foreign takeover of our country. The military has a responsibility to maintain order and the rule of law." 
we cannot stand by and allow this to stand. And the military, it's not being made uh, too much in, in the uh, news, but uh, the military in Brazil is stepping in. And they've said, okay, and they've, started, they've actually started to do things. Um, and you will see more about that in, in the coming months, I'm sure. So th- there's fraudulent elections everywhere. So, yes, we must also work on that front to bring honesty and truth back into the whole political process and into elections. But, but our, ultimately, our, the solution to totalitarianism is not going to come from that. Uh, we need to fight this fifth-generation war on all fronts, but, but it's fundamentally a perception and ideology, and we need to change our own. We can only change ourselves. Other people, we only terrorize. And so mm. the, the battle, the spiritual battle fought within is to seek truth, in our own lives, to seek a, a change in our own consciousness, uh, raising our own consciousness. This is the only way we will affect, you know, the collective consciousness in our own, in our own communities, nations, and in the whole world. So, yeah, you can never just get rid of the bad guys and bring in good guys. That's not how totalitarian ends, which leads us ultimately back to the spiritual solution of raising our own consciousness, seeking truth and honesty in our own lives, insisting on truth and honesty and not going along with lies. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this about communism in the Soviet Union in the the famous essay that he wrote as he was being thrown out of the Soviet Union, and I think it was 1974, it titled live not by lies he said communism is a system of lies if you simply stop going along with the lies the whole system will collapse and and as all of us look at how many lies we are going along with in our mm-hmm. lives this this if if massive numbers of people stop going along if if, if you you mentioned your friend in hollywood if all of the unvaxxed people you know who were forced to do this something said no this is a lie what you're doing is a lie. I'm not, I'm not going along with that. If we simply, if, if a significant minority of people simply said, no, I'm not wearing the mask, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as they say, like one person who stands up, you know, will be, will be thrown in jail. A hundred people who stand up will be ticketed. But if a hundred thousand people stand up, it becomes impossible, right? If, if, you, if you have a company uh, where they bring in a mask mandate. Everybody has to wear masks in our in our company. If even 10 or 20% said, no, what you're doing is illegal, um, I will not comply. It, it's, mm-hmm. There's no science behind it. It's not based on anything. It's, it, it, I, we will not do it. And if, if you attempt to take action against us, we will take legal action against you because what you're doing is against the law. If even 10 or 20% of, of the people in the company said that and actually did that. This is lawfare, right? Lawfare is a type of, is one type of fifth generation warfare. It's being used against us. We need to use lawfare against those who are using it against us. This is legitimate fifth generation warfare. It's nonviolent. It's non-cooperation. It's completely legitimate. So th- this is what we need to do is we need to come together. One thing, if I could just touch on one th- more thing about the mass formation is Matthias Desmond says that in all of the many uh, cases that this has appeared over the last century or so, so the results are amazingly consistent. About 30% of people are hypnotized. They're taken in to the mass formation. And, um, you know, we call them the, the true believers. They truly believe that, like... Like drink the Kool-Aid, know, carbon, right? 
They, they drank the Kool-Aid. They truly, they truly believe that you know, wearing the mask is going to save the whole world. They truly oh, believe yeah. that, that somehow their personal carbon footprint is changing the whole world's climate. All of this stuff, they truly believe it. Then there's another 30% who, who realize that, hold it, this, this is nonsense. This, this isn't right. And, and they speak out against it. Those are the, the rebels, like us. Mm-hmm. We're the, we're the mm-hmm. rebels, right? And then the other 40 the other 40% of people, we call them the fence sitters, that like it doesn't quite make sense to them. They think something's wrong with it, but they go along anyway. And this expression, go along, this also was a very common expression in, in 1930s Germany. Lots mm-hmm. of people knew that these Nazis were crazy, but they, they, they said, well, just go along with them. Like, like, like don't make waves. It will work out better if we just quietly go along. How, how many times have we heard that with COVID? Just go mm-hmm. along. Yeah, it'll just be temporary. It's just two weeks to flatten the curve, right? Which then turned into two months and then two years and whatever. And uh, yeah, and I and I wore a mask early on as well, not because I thought it worked. I was like, ugh, this is so stupid. People are going to wake up soon. So <laughs> I'm just going to go. And, and the funny thing is some of my friends, like one's a tailor, so actually made like these African, like he does African clothes and stuff like that. So he actually, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll here's my chance, I'll support him, right? I'll buy the mask and, you know, everything. But then when I saw the bigger pattern, Don, and what you're talking about and we're researching and, and saw the end game, if you will, of that, I'm like, whoa, oh, I don't want to be part of that. No, 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 no. Yeah. Okay, it's not just about this thing, right? People going, you know, I think it works. I'm like, well, not really, but I'm going to do it anyway. To going, this is actually wrong, okay? Based on what I say I want, which is peace, joy, love, harmony, and and you know, freedom for all. Uh, this is actually wrong. It does not work. And if I continue to do this particular thing, I'm not helping, but I'm actually hurting my cause and my mission. So then I stop. And if, and everyone, and everyone, right? I mean, it's like the old saying: the only thing required for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so yeah. when you were talking, an idea occurred to me. A little vision came into my mind. We should we should make up masks with those uh, those fishnet stocking type things that ladies used oh, to wear. Oh, people right? wear that stuff, and they and they they're fine with that. It's hilarious, you know. Like there's all these memes with you know Trudeau with the you know selling new face diapers with now with a clear blah blah blah. You know, you can see the person's face. Anyway, all these crazy crazy uh, funny memes going on. But, but here's the thing, Don, I wanted to ask you about, uh, in your book, you talk, you, each chapter more or less ends with, you know, what we can do, take action. Some people who are on, in that 40% who are waking up to, okay, this is not adding up, and maybe there's something nefarious here. Maybe it's actually fraud, right? And they're waking up to that. Maybe they have had loved ones that have been killed and or maimed and or damaged by the jibby-jabby whatever it is, they're getting to that point, they can get to a place of, number one, first of all, feeling completely traumatized, and number two, yes. feel completely overwhelmed with, now what do I do, right? If you're telling me that, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, blah, 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 you know, uh, that, that, that Ukraine, Russia are all, you know, uh, every war is, is got the same players on both sides, like, what do I do? Like, where do I buy from? Like, you know, is this brand better than that brand? Like I was telling you, Don, before we started recording, I'm like, okay, if I want to divest, you know, energy from PayPal and Stripe, now how am I going to get money, right? How, how are people going to pay me, right, for my services, right, if, if, if they're part of the problem? So the web of the lies and process has permeated almost every aspect of our daily modern lives, smartphones, 
Like, there's so many yeah. things. Like, it's so overwhelming. What, I mean, what do you do when people are like, I'm overwhelmed on? Like, I, you know, because at the, on the one hand, you don't want to be the next person that's telling them what to do, right? They've already been damaged and traumatized by people telling them what to do and then find out that they were wrong and, and or at least, you know, we're not on the hum, human side or um, a humanistic side. Um, what can people do without being totally overwhelmed by now their new ethics? of understanding what's going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you're absolutely right. And people are traumatized. And, and uh, this is why I still, you know, see uh, people walking around, you know, walking past my house or walking their dogs outside where it's, you know, snow all over the place, it's below zero, and they're wearing a mask. And my first reaction is to laugh at them. But, you know, I, I tried to temper that quickly with understanding mm-hmm. these people are literally traumatized. Yeah. They, they are living in trauma. Yeah. And... Um, they're also hypnotized. They're both hypnotized yeah. and traumatized. And as people wake up, it's, it's kind of a slow process coming out of this. Mm. And we need, we need to help each other. We need to help each other heal from this trauma. It, it will be very traumatic as people start realizing more and more, yeah, we were lied to about this. And it's, it's like, when you, you know, you have a, for example, you, you have a spouse, right, that, that you've trusted for years, decades maybe, and you suddenly find out that the spouse has been having, you know, a sexual affair with someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is traumatizing. And, yeah. you know, th- I, probably the second question you ask yourself is, I mean, what, what else has he lied about? Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> That's what's happening. You know, That's what's happening. And, like, the and, more I look, the more what, stuff there is. Yeah. And so... And so I say, this is why I say that this, this, one of the many reasons that this is leading to societal collapse, it's, it's unavoidable now. And one of the fundamental reasons is because as you start questioning, as trust leaves, trust is the foundation of every single religion, just that, like in the example I gave, right? I mean, if you, you find your spouse has now been having a, a sexual affair uh, outside of your marriage, what well, trust is gone. Now you don't you're just a you know husband or wife whatever like now you don't trust this person with anything the whole basis of your relationship is gone and as we begin to realize that we cannot trust our governments we cannot trust our news media we cannot trust our doctors even we cannot trust our scientists and like this is traumatic and who do you trust and so Every relationship in society is in the process of breaking down. This will lead in some way, form, shape, or another, will lead to societal collapse. So we need to help each other, and we need to build new relationships, new communities to help each other in every way we possibly can and in every way that that our brothers and sisters need help. I mean, they include this in, in the midst of a longer quote from Edgar Casey in the book, you know, where he says, and I won't get it quite right, but I'll get the idea. You know, who is, who is my brother? He that is next door or he that is on the other side of the world. He that is, he that mm-hmm. is suffering. He that is in need. He is your brother. You must account for him. Mm. So, yes, yeah. who, whoever is hurting, whoever is in need, he is my brother. She is my sister. And, and we must, you know, we will be asked to account for him. What did we do 
right? And even as Jesus said, if you give a, a, a drink of water to one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters, you, you did it for me. And so, yes, we need to help each other on whatever small level and scale we can. And, and that's where we begin. That's where we begin, little, little things. Um, you're doing your part in many ways. I saw, you know, a significant part of, of my effort, my help, was in writing this book and now sharing the ideas in the book to help other people. So, you know, throughout the book, yeah, almost every chapter has a little section at the end that says what you can do now. And some of them are very simple little things that, yeah, you everybody can do now. Take steps, for example, to, you mentioned all the, you know, the, the financial. And so this chapter on financial and currency fraud and, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, these, these are, we, we are, uh, I believe, from, you know, my background in economics, it's not conspiracy theory or it's not nonsense. Uh, and many other people smarter than me in this area agree. We are unavoidably heading to some kind of a, of a huge financial collapse. It, I believe it's unavoidable. How it actually plays out remains to be seen. Nobody knows that for certain. But we will be forced into other uh, ways of paying each other, of exchanging value. And, and we can begin now to start to look at that. Um, so, you know, I, I suggest everybody keep at least some cash at home, dollar bills, coins. Um, there will, you know, just, this is just a matter of, let's say, like insurance, you know, keep a $1,000 or two or $3,000 in cash somewhere, you know, in, hidden in your home whatever. and because you know it's likely the day will come when the banks are going to close and then our currency is going to be converted to some kind of a digital currency or our deposits are going to be converted into shares in the bank and they'll say oh like they did in in, in China. the Chinese bank oh my yeah goodness. they said okay <laughs> oh, you had whatever you say you had ten thousand dollars uh deposited in your bank account oh well you still have it but now it's not a deposit now it shares in the bank and but oh but you can't trade them like you can't sell them right. but, but you still have yeah, it right it. so <laughs> like it's, it's, it's it's a way of stealing your money so yeah we have to look into these for example like in in this year i also i opened up a proton mail account i'm trying to make this rather slow transition away from Gmail because Google is, is the greatest uh, surveillance um, mm. uh, a tool ever invented. So I'm trying to gradually move away from it, but I still have my Gmail account. It's a, it's a process, right. but, you know, I mean. Same so with us. Can, Our whole business runs on, you know, the Google workspace. And uh, what the one time done, I don't know, you, you don't know this, but I actually jumped a ship from, one um, CRM uh, course, you know, uh, creation program, uh, pr- platform to another one from Kartra to Kajabi because Kartra added into their policies, no, you know, uh, anti-vaccination movement is uh, not allowed on their platform. And I'm like, well, I asked the legal team, I'm like, who decides that? Like a doctor? Like, you know, who decides it? And they didn't answer me for a year. And I thought I'd ask them again. And yeah. they said, oh, I'm so sorry. We a didn't doctor? see you now. And they said, well, it's just because uh, we have to say this on our policies because we use Amazon Web Services and they require it. So, but I jumped ship yeah. from them to Kajabi and uh, that alone was so disruptive to the entire company. I'm like, how much stress did I cause my team members in doing that because of me saying, well, this is more ethical than that, you know? And so this whole slow <laughs> integration 
to new things, it may have to be slower than our minds would like us to, to do. I just want to jump ship off everything, but then the business would halt immediately. Uh, and my whole life yeah. would halt. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I hear what you're but, saying. But, yeah, but all, all of us can take small steps. And that's why at the end of each chapter, you know, I give some suggestions for small steps. But, but mm. fundamentally, in every, in every aspect of our lives, we have to stop going along the flies. Just like, just like uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, we must insist on the truth. Find ways to stop going along with flies. And when we hear our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, our employers, people at work, you know, saying something that, that we know is a lie, we need to speak out. Not, not in anger or hatred, but say, no, that, that's a lie. That's not true. <laughs> here's, here's the truth. If you don't know it and you don't believe me, you're free to check it out. But, you know, I'm happy to discuss it. But mostly people, you know, won't discuss things. Uh, they argue, they call you names, and they ignore you. So, uh, but, but we have to start this. I mean, and one of the things, for example, in a similar vein, I've been saying for a couple of years, yes, like our public demonstrations are useful. They're not actually going to change anything in and of themselves. But the, and Matthias Desmond says the same thing too. Yes, we must speak up because what it does is all that 40% of fence sitters who, who, who think something's wrong but are going along, they start, they start more and more to realize, well, that's interesting because there's obviously intelligent, coherent, educated people who don't who don't go along and they're managing still to live their lives um you know it it Mm -hmm. starts to shatter the the hypnosis gradually gradually so you know we we will have an impact and we have to stop going along with lies in every part of our lives and in in all of these frauds and take little steps and as i you know mentioned repeatedly throughout the book as well we have to start forming new relationships, new communities, communities of truth, communities that will, yes. this is, and this is, this goes back to, um, uh, to the ideas back in the, the, the 1970s, really, of the famous uh, Czechoslovakian dissident in communist Czechoslovakia by the name of Vaclav Havel. Some of our listeners will recognize that name. And he came up with the idea that he calls parallel structures. And that when, when you're trying to push back against a totalitarian government that controls everything, controls all of the what we could call structures in society, as we have right now, we, we have the form of democracy, but all of our democracies are actually functioning as dictatorships. This also goes back to the, the parallels with Nazi Germany. Uh, some people who remember a little bit about the history will remember that, you know, when Hitler became chancellor, you know, one of the first things he did is that he got his own agents to burn down the German parliament building. And then he blamed hmm. the communists, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is like, well, today we use the term false flag. Yeah, right. Hitler did it himself. Hitler did it himself. And then he blamed his political enemies, used it to round up communists, throw them in concentration camps, destroy the communist party, and then say, oh, well, you know, because of this, this, uh, this terrorism and this emergency, we need to pass this emergency legislation. <laughs> Where have we heard that before, right? That to give, oh, yeah. uh, to give cabinet the power to make laws. They called it the, um, oh, the name flips my mind. The, they called it the Enabling Act. Enabling enables, Act, wow. Enable, they called it the Enabling Act. And, you know, some of our listeners will, will probably realize that all of these acts and laws that pass through all of our governments, the American government, the Canadian government, 
the, the names are complete fiction. So they're actually, they're actually propaganda terms. They have nothing to do with it, right? The Inflation Reduction Act had nothing to do with reducing inflation. <laughs> <laughs> right, and all this uh, sustainable stu- stuff, the World Economic Forum, it all sounds great. Sustainable future, you know, peace, and it sounds really great. The names of all these organizations sound amazing, right? But when you look at what yep. they actually do, especially what they do behind the scenes, you're like, well, well wait a second. Yep. That's nothing like what yep. you said. Not That's you. Exactly them. right. Yeah, yeah. We, we think that they, they give them names that sound good. And that's as far as the headlines go in, in the media. And that's as far as most people look. Because you know what? All of us are living our lives. We have our own lives to live. We, we, it's not possible for us to go down all these rabbit holes and figure out, well, what, what does the, the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty really say? Nobody, nobody actually has time to, to figure <laughs> right. that out. It sounds good on paper, but treaty. not really. That sounds like a good idea, but it has nothing to do with that. Yeah. In truth. yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, so the Enabling Act enabled the, the cabinet to actually make laws. Mm. So the, 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 the parliament itself continued to meet in the theater. Yeah, theater. Appropriate. I love it. Yep, it, yep, the word theater. it was. Yeah, after cabinet could make laws, like the parliament itself was just theater. And since since Hitler appointed the cabinet, of course, as every cabinet Mm -hmm. is, Hitler was was dictator. So they had the form of democracy. But once the Enabling Act was passed, it functioned as a dictatorship. And we have essentially the same thing throughout the whole Western world. We still have the form of democracy, but they're not functioning as democracies. They're functioning as dictatorships. And um, anyway, I, I kind of got off. Oh that, my gosh! Well, you know, Don, what, what we're, we're running we're running out of time here, but I, I want to make sure that people know where they can get your book, uh, as well as where where they can contact you if they want to, you know, meet with you or work with you. So, can you share with us those links or where people can Ab- find? Absolutely. Ab- yeah, absolutely. My book is available on, on Amazon, of course. It's uh, it's a very recent book, so Amazon still hasn't got up the the ebook version. I don't know why it takes them weeks and weeks and weeks to get that up, but the, the best place to go uh, is directly to my website and you'll find direct links you can just click on. Uh, my publisher, bookpocket.com, has, has the electronic version. If you want that, that's the best place to get it. I've also noticed that uh, Amazon Canada has an absolutely ridiculous price on my book. I don't know why they can't figure out exchange rates. It's not that hard between Canadian dollars and U.S. dollars. <laughs> so, uh, so the, the best place to get the book is still directly from my publisher. And you can find all the links. Just go to my website. It's easy to remember, www.comminghomespirit.com. Comminghomespirit.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as you go there, the Front first page has all the links. If you want to learn more about the rest of my books, just click on the books page, and you can see the other books. Uh, the second edition of my little pocket guide to to spiritual growth is it will be coming out soon. So yeah, you, you can get the first the first edition as a PDF download, but just wait a few more weeks and you'll be able to get the second edition. Um, but yeah. Coming Home Spirit, oh, that's the that's best place. You'll find all the links. You'll find out all you there's, – there's more biographical information about my life there than you probably want to read and all kinds of stuff. You can sign up <laughs> to get my blog, get all kinds of stuff. Coming Home Spirit, that's the best place to go. 
Okay, ComingHomeSpirit.com, great. Oh, Don, you know, this has been so great interviewing you. Uh, you and I could probably talk for hours and hours and hours and hours, so maybe we'll have you come back to the Light Medicine community <laughs> to chat more with our tribe. They absolutely love you, and uh, yeah. I'm sure the folks listening well, in as well have gotten a lot of value uh, from this interview. So thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you so much, Karen. It's my joy. And, you know, if, if I ever get by upstate New York, which who knows, I might uh, again someday, because um, you're in upstate New York, right? Yes, yes. They're actually having an in-person event at my friend Kathy Homeyer's place at the Lake Clear Lodge and Resort sometime in early June, most likely called the Light Warrior Training Camp, five-day camp where we um, activate people's superpowers. Uh, I don't know. I mean, your Albert is a little ways away, but if you're ever on this neck of the woods, we would love, love to meet you in person. Well, it, it, it's... it's um there's there's actually a slight chance. I'm going to keep that in mind, June in upstate New York, because, you know, my mother's family came from that area. My mother's family lived in uh, Syracuse and the area around there for generations and generations. Okay. Um, her maiden name was uh, Wellington. And there's still a place, now I can't remember where it is, and I think there's nothing nothing there anymore but the name. There's still a place called Wellington's Corners where mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. great, great, grandfather wellington had a blacksmith shop on the of course they're all dirt roads through the through the forest in those days but he had a blacksmith shop there and uh, and his name was wellington and it got named wellington's corner so so yeah okay. i have some family maybe there might still be some some wellington people around uh, upstate new york i don't know but uh, that's cool. Well, we'll keep in touch. Yeah, so thanks, uh, everyone, for listening in. Again, thank you, Don, and we look forward to connecting with you soon. And thank you very much for uh, writing your amazing book, What the Hell is Going On. Uh, we'll put the link uh, near this, uh, wherever this is posted. We'll put the link there directly to the book as well as to your website. And until next time, bye for now. Lots of love. Bye for now. God bless you.